is Victorian Scribblers, an informal exploration of the lives and work of lesser-known Victorian writers. I'm Dr. Courtney Floyd, a specialist in 19th century literature and print culture. And I'm Eleanor Dunville, a PhD student in Victorian literature and publishing at Loughborough University in the UK. Welcome to episode 21, Martin R. Delaney's Writing. Today we are going to be reading you two excerpt or two kind of examples of Delaney's nonfiction. He had quite a range, so he the pieces we're reading today range from the scientific to the political, um, which I think is a really good encapsulation of um, why he's in this season, but also like what we learned about him in the last three episodes. Yeah, it feels like we've been talking so much about him being, um, whether or not we're going to use the word polymath, but having expertise in so many different fields, it feels right to have two examples from two of those very different fields related to the topics we've been talking about with Delaney. I'm currently listening to the audiobook of Akala's Natives, and it is such a like enlightening book, and I would recommend anyone to read it, but he really does like a really admirable look at the history. I would really recommend that book, especially the audiobook, because he reads it himself, and he's a performer, so he is really good at that. Yes, yeah. So the first piece we're reading for you today is called True Patriotism. Um... And it was published in the North Star on December 8th of 1848. Um, This piece contains some ableist language, as writing of the 19th century is wont to do. Just FYI. I guess this is just maybe another good time to say that we are seriously considering phasing out the writing episodes and just maybe having a little bit more robust of a segment on writing in the biographical episodes. And um, unless we get extremely uh, enthusiastic feedback in like contradiction to that, we're probably going to be going ahead with our plan to stop doing these standalone writing episodes starting next season. So um, I'm just giving listeners another chance to let us know where they sit on this issue. Yeah, the feedback we've got so far is that people would prefer to have it in that format. But if, yeah, like you say, if anyone has strong feelings. Okay, so without further ado, this is True Patriotism by Martin R. Delaney. Patriotism consists not in a mere professed love of country, the place of one's birth, an endearment to the scenery, however delightful and interesting, of such country, nor simply the laws and political policy by which such country is governed but a pure and unsophisticated interest felt and manifested for man, an impartial love and desire for the promotion and elevation of every member of the body politic, their eligibility to all the rights and privileges of society. This, and other than this, fails to establish the claims of true patriotism. 
From periods the most remote, the most improper application has been made of the endearing term patriot. Whether the most absolute monarch, crowned with the hereditary diadem, armed with an unlimited scepter, the most intolerable despot, bearing the title of sovereign, the most cruel and heartless oppressor and slaveholder under the boasted title of president, the most relentless butcher and murderer called commander-in-chief, the most haughty and scornful aristocrat who tramples upon the people's rights in the halls of legislation, the most reckless and unprincipled statesman rioting upon the spoils of a plundered revenue. Whether Phillips, Curran, or Grattan, in defense of Irish constitutional liberty, Emmett upon the scaffold, refusing to let his epitaph be written until Ireland was free, William Tell under sentence of death, baffling the schemes of the German tyrant, Gessler, the French baron, Lafayette, leaving his native country and princely fortune to share in common the fate of the struggling American, Washington as the leader of his country's destiny, O'Connell as the liberator, Thomas Jefferson, Patrick Henry, or John Quincy Adams standing in the frontal ranks as defenders of American rights, or Mitchell and O'Brien, who sacrificed their all, being forever divorced and exiled from the most tender ties of domestic affections by the severity of the laws of their country, for daring to discard provisions deemed pernicious to the welfare of their countrymen. All have laid equal claim to the share of the popular gratitude and been endowed with the loved title of patriot. A patriot may exist, whether blessed with the privileges of a country, favored with a free constituency, or flying before his pursuers, and Roman exile, the declared outlaw of the power that besets him. Love to man and uncompromising hostility to that which interferes with his divine God-given rights are the only traits which distinguish the true patriot. To be patriotic is to be philanthropic, to be which is necessary to love all men, regarding their humanity with equal importance. Much has been the interest felt and manifested in this country in every movement, with exceptions to be named, whether home or abroad, in favor of human liberty and those who are foremost in the struggle bequeathed their names to the present and future time to become the subject of the poet and the theme of the historian. Spain, Italy, Greece, Poland, Germany, France, England, Scotland, and Ireland of modern date all have had their patriots, each of whom in succession has shared largely of America's eulogium. And all and of all who have scanned the ordeal before them, there were none perhaps for whom there has been expressed more sympathy than the late victims of British displeasure, the Irish patriots and convicts, Mitchell and O'Brien, especially the latter, the severity of whose sentence aroused every feeling and expression of opposition to the execution of the sentence. To witness the public demonstrations as manifested in favor of the Irish struggle, in which mayors of cities, judges of courts, sons of ex-presidents and ex-governors participated, and the universal interest felt in the result, is well tended to deceive and betray into the idea, those not otherwise advised, that this nation is a nation of justice. But how will America stand when compared with other countries, dark as may be the gloom of their semi-barbarous laws? Condemned must she be in the moral vision of the whole enlightened world. Loud, long, and damning must be the anathema uttered against her by those whom she treats and so regards in all her legal acknowledgments as aliens and enemies, ere their eyes be opened to a sense of their condition, and she still refuses to succor them. 
But how many patriots have lived, toiled, suffered, and died, having worn out a life of usefulness, unobtrusively laboring in the cause of suffering humanity, living to the community and the world a life of seclusion, passing to and fro unobserved, amidst the stir and busy scenes of a metropolis, and the throng and bustle of assembled thousands? This class of patriots may be found in every country, but to none are they more common than America, and in no country would they meet with less acceptance than in this republic. Ever professing their most liberal principles, proclaiming liberty and equality to all mankind, their course of policy gives a glaring contradiction to their pretensions, and the lie to their professions. Prone as they are to tyrannize and despotize over the liberties of the few, the philanthropist who espouses the cause of the oppressed is destined to a life of obscurity. Instead of commendation and renown, contempt and neglect are the certain and most bitter fruits of his reward. Marked and pointed out by the finger of scorn, he at once becomes the mock of the scoffer and hiss of the reviler. And affliction heaped upon affliction presses upon him like a mountain weight, until at last he sinks under the mighty pressure, unable longer to bear it up. Yet galling as this may be, it is a boon for which the downtrodden, oppressed American might anxiously long, compared with his own present, miserable, unhappy condition. Among them have existed, and there do exist, those who are justly entitled to all the claims of true patriotism. But prescription, as infamous as it is wicked, has stamped the seal of degradation upon their brow, and instead of patriots they become the felon and outlaw. Anticipated and preconcerted by an inquisition of prejudice and slaveholding influence, the racial term man of this confederacy, especially the bondman, is doomed to ignominy, whatever may be his merits. Though he has complied with the first demand of a freeman, born arms in defense of his country, no sooner is victory won than he is unarmed, not only of his implements, but also of his equality with those among whom he bravely fought side by side for liberty and equality. Mathematician and philosopher he may be, not only furnishing to the country the only correct calendar of time and chronological cycles, but further contribute to its interest by assisting in the plot and survey of the District of Columbia, without the aid of whose talents it could not at that time have been accomplished with the mathematical accuracy. Yet no sooner is this effected than he is forgotten to the nation. Though in a professedly Republican and free Christian country the yoke is upon his neck and fetters upon his limbs, and dare he make the attempt to release himself and brethren from a condition little less than death itself, the whole country is solemnly bound in one confederated band to riddle his breast with ten thousand balls. Is he a slave the most abject of South America or Cuba, who, rising in the majesty of his nature, with a bold and manly bearing, heads his enslaved brethren, leading them on to a holy contest for the liberty of their wives, mothers, sisters, and children? He is, with one universal voice, denounced in this country as a rebel, insurrectionist, cutthroat. And all the powers of despotism, America in the foremost rank, sallies forth in one united crusade against him. Many are the untiring, uncompromising, stern, and indefatigable enemies of oppression, and friends of God and humanity, now to be found among the nominally freed racial term people of this slavery-cursed land, at work laboring for the good of all men, though some have recently escaped from the American prison house of bondage, bearing still fresh upon their quivering flesh the sting of the whips and marks of the lash, 
many of whom for talents and the qualified ability to write and speak, will favorably compare with the proudest despots and oppressors in the country. Though they speak, act, petition, remonstrate, pray, and appeal, yet to all this the wickedness of the American people turns a deaf ear and a closed eye. Hence, the American racial term patriot lives but to be despised, feared, and hated, accordingly as his talents may place him in the community. Moving amidst the masses, he passes unobserved, and at last goes down to the grave in obscurity, without a tear to condole his loss, or a breast to heave in sympathy. But the time shall yet come when the name of the despised, neglected American patriot, in spite of American prejudice, shall rise superior to the spirit that would degrade it, and take its place on the records of merit and fame. Ooh. That is... Uh, he doesn't pull any punches. Yeah, I think... <laughs> I was trying to think of how to say that. That's strong. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's why I'm having such, like, such a hard time... Does this ring true to me? to it. In our current election cycle? Yes, yes, it does. I wish it wasn't relevant. <laughs> yeah. Uh. But yeah, I think, like, a lot of Delaney's writing... Sorry, it's so... I think this... Strong and powerful... Like that's something he has a real, real talent for. Yeah, I um, as I was reading, I kept, as I was reading, I kept thinking how well written it was. Um, I was gonna say like I think this really sheds some light on. This is actually prior to his own military service. However, I think it sheds some light on the sort of reversal he had in thinking about whether or not to like, whether or not basically America was redeemable and worth like fighting for a place in right because as we talked about i think maybe at the end of part two or maybe early in part three of episode 20 um delaney sort of at some point really stopped having expectations of the united states and started thinking about liberia as a as this sort of place where justice and yeah like community and like all the good things could be fostered so i think this sort of maybe is an early example of him sort of questioning whether yeah whether america can be a place for uh, a black man to succeed and actually be like part of the community and have like a fulfilling life and he's already thinking well Maybe not. Also, like, reading this sitting at, you know, like, working at UVA, which is, you know, like, basically the temple of Thomas Jefferson in a lot of ways, um, that he he calls out Thomas Jefferson by name is, like, yay, a little bit. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. When you're in true Jefferson country. (sighs) Who's such a weird such a weird I mean I've I've done the tour I've done the tour of his estate twice and I I think like I really like the way that the um the tour guides the docents um talk about like Jefferson talks this really big game about he wants to abolish slavery right like in his early draft of the declaration he tries to write in some language about like getting rid of slavery that's knocked out but he also only releases he only frees 10 of his enslaved people 
10 of the enslaved people on his estate, like, during his lifetime. And, like, I think half of them were his children by Sally Hemings. So, yeah. It's, like, not enough to talk. And Delaney, Delaney is pointing that out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there were these things where it's like, oh, he's really... Um like forward thinking and kind because his daughter who was like his daughter born to him by Sally Hemings left to go to I think it's Pennsylvania and he didn't pursue her it's like okay that's literally the bare minimum yeah yeah it's and Sally Hemings like travels with Jefferson to Paris uh at one point where she could have just like left and been free like just based on the laws in Paris which is something that people did in London too but he like basically Mm. promises that her children will be free if she remains enslaved at this point I think she hasn't even had children by him yet it's just this really weird and like really manipulative move and also he was super like cultural appropriate sorry go ahead oh no it's okay i feel like you're making a more valid point but i was gonna say doesn't he like is it jefferson that has that point in his will that's like when i die all of my children will be freed i think so yeah i don't know oh it might be i mean i mean it might be washington it might be a different one of the founding fathers well yeah yeah, Washington's the one that says when he dies, all of his slaves yeah. will be freed. Um, but he doesn't, like, Martha, his wife Martha's never f- frees her slaves. Um, yeah, but I was, the what I was about to say was that um, Jefferson's also super cultural appropriation-y of the Native Americans. Like, he likes their art and stuff, and it's, like, all over his house. But he also is, like, drive them out, and he's super racist toward them as people. He just likes their stuff and steals their ideas, right? Because the Iroquois Confederation. But it's cultural appreciation. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, like, the the little known thing, like, everyone's always like, oh, our, our um, uh, now I'm going to forget what it's called. Oh, gosh. Our constitution is based on, like, you know, ancient Greeks and Rome, but actually, like, it's more closely modeled on the Iroquois Confederation. Um, and that's another of the things that like Jefferson and the founding fathers, they're like, oh, yes, we love your ideas and your art, but you cannot be here anymore. So that's my rant about. Um, yeah, we love what you make, <laughs> but you aren't actually people. Yeah. That's my rant about the founding fathers for this <laughs> today. Um, yeah. This is where I say, like, I wish we'd had a recorder in the car when you were driving me around Jefferson country and we were just having similar rants. Yeah, I wish we had thought of that. That would have been a cool, like, bonus thing to do. So the article that I want to read is a lot less politically charged um, in many ways. From the very first issue of the Anglo-African magazine in January 1859, so it's a little while after this. Um, This is not about politics, as we said at the start. This is a scientific article. And I was struck by how well this speaks to the Wells story that Courtney read for the Christmas episode. 
So this article is called The Attraction of Planets by M.R. Delaney. Many, even among persons of intelligence and scientific attainments, entertain the apprehension of a clashing of worlds or the contact of ours with some other planet. This is a physical impossibility according to the laws of nature. And though in truth it may be said that theory on the heavenly bodies is merely conjecture, yet the simple observance of a scientific fact will prove the fallacy of the premise. There is a law essential to matter, of mutual attraction and repulsion, which would seem to depend on the spherical shape of bodies. The ultimate particles of all matter, being spherical, different substances, differing in the power of attraction, present this property in different degrees, and apparently under different circumstances. The larger the body, the greater the powers of attraction and repulsion, which has properly been attributed to the presence of electricity demonstrated by isolated bodies in opposite states of electrical influence, positive and negative. Why this is so is a question no more to be answered satisfactorily than to explain the cause of the projecting rays of the sun. Yet, it will not be denied that the rays of the sun are known to a certainty to project, because we both see and feel their effects and influence on everything around us. Atomic, or the attraction of cohesion, so far as nature is concerned, as yet remains a mystery to the scientific world, which never as yet has been satisfactorily explained. But why remain a mystery, since the attraction of gravitation and the influence of electricity have become known? It has long since been discovered that different materials present different powers of attraction. Thus, lead has less than gold, gold than silver, silver than copper, copper than iron, each of which is proportionably stronger than the other, which depends entirely upon cohesion, or the mutual attraction of particles. What then is cohesive attraction? Why do particles, unseparated by force, mutually adhere together? The only attraction, the nature of which is understood with certainty, is that of electricity, different materials possessing for it different degrees of capacity. Thus, two bodies, when similarly electrified, whether in a high or low degree, mutually repel each other, while two, dissimilarly electrified, mutually attract each other. Hence, a positively electrified body will attract a negative, whilst two positive or two negative will mutually repel each other. The terms positive and negative are simply relative, referring to the comparative condition of each body with the other. A body is said to be positive when containing a higher degree of electricity than another with which it is compared, and negative when a lower degree. The beauty and wisdom of this arrangement must become apparent. All substances, as proven by chemical analysis, are composed of compound materials, even those which are thought to be reduced to a simple elementary constituent. If a body in the aggregate be thus composed, each particle being also a body independent, must also in like manner be composed of compound materials, as it is impossible by any mechanical agency to reduce a solid body to the ultimate atomic constituency. By this may be understood the laws of the attraction of cohesion, the positive and negative state of the atomic particles of matter. These minute particles, in different electric conditions, continually mutually attract each other, forming the closest adhesion. Fracture or separation of parts of a body unknown by force must be attributable to an electrical similarity of all the particles, which separated from each other, which is simply electrical repulsion, by similarly electrified bodies. Electricity, like calorie or heat, is universal or everywhere present which, being a latent state, is only observed when sensibly excited to action. It is in this state of latency it acts as a cohesive attraction, the surplus fluid passing off to neighbouring foreign bodies. 
By this mighty economy is displayed the wisdom of omnipotence and disclosed the wonderful laws which govern the planetary system of the universe. The sun, the centre of our system, stands unmoved in space, except to revolve on his axis, and being similarly electrified, keeps at a proper distance the Earth, revolving in her orbit. But to complete these revolutions and harmonise the system in conformity with the annual changes of seasons, the Earth must continually vary in electrical intensity, being alternately positive and negative. Supposing the Earth when ushered out of almighty hands at any given distance from the Sun, which distance, according to divine wisdom, would be in harmony with the design, to have been in a negative state of electricity, it would necessarily have projected through space, attracted by the Sun's superior body of intense electricity, until reaching within a given distance, having attained the same degree of electrical intensity, increasing as it approached, a repulsion would take place when the Earth, instead of being directly stopped in her progress and turned back by the radiating arrangement of the solar influence, would change the direction in a curve or ellipsis and passing a short distance around the Sun, when, with a velocity equal to that with which she approached, retrace her course by repulsion of the Sun. Continuing in opposite direction until losing her electrical intensity, having reached near the point of starting, being again attracted retraces her steps in a curve, returning toward the Sun by the original path, forming the annual revolution. The Moon doubtless bears the same relation to the Earth as the Earth to the Sun, being governed by the same rules of attraction. The revolution of the planets upon their own axes taking place at the first attractive impulse, there could not be any counteracting influence to change their course of motion. Hence their continual revolution with unimpeded or unaccelerated motion, in the same direction in which the first impulse was given. By this beautiful law alone, may the phenomenon of meteoric stones be satisfactorily accounted for. These astronomical missiles being stone or minerals, some material substance, situated on the surface of the moon, attaining an electrical intensity equal to that of the centre of the planet, in which condition it is simply positive to it, is suddenly repulsed with a force proportional to the difference of their bulk, projecting it through space to the Earth, the comparative short distance of 240,000 miles, with a velocity imperceptible to the naked eye. The exit of a meteoric missile might not consume a longer time than would be required by the hand of the swiftest penman to write the word meteoric stone, or the darting across the heavens of a vivid flash of lightning. When comparing this estimate with that of the velocity the swiftest planets, it may not appear extravagant. The diameter of the Sun is estimated at 2.4 million miles, supposing every ray of light emanating from this immense surface of 2,400,000 miles of a circle, which doubtless is the case, to be a medium for active electrical attraction. Its impulsive influence upon the Earth will not for a moment be doubted. And comparing the Earth in relation to the Sun with a stone thrown from the Moon, with the repulsive influence of the planet, places at once, it would seem, the conclusion beyond a successful controversy. The rays of the sun are doubtless the greatest media of electrical attraction and influence upon our planetary system. The Earth being a modifying medium between the sun and the moon. Other planets in like manner relatively modifying each other's motion. Positive electricity impels the Earth to aphelion, negative to perihelion. The moon to apogee and perigee. The great mystery of the laws of the mutual attraction of matter and planetary motion, doubtless finding a solution in the laws of electricity. The Earth as a body containing all the elements of atomic attraction, as previously unexplained, attains an electrical intensity making it positive to everything upon the surface, thus from their negative condition attracting and retaining them permanently upon it. The location of this electrical influence is always at the centre of bodies, 
hence the impossibility of separating a portion of the planet away from herself. Were this not the case, it would be impossible to retain anything upon the surface, as all detached or loose bodies would immediately fly off in a tangent, being repelled by the revolution of the Earth on her axis. Latent electricity does not affect small bodies, nor detached portions of the large ones, as planets in relation to themselves, although of similar electrical intensity. Thus, two copper balls of equal electrical capacity and intensity may be brought in close proximity without any sensible effect whatever. Or the same of copper and iron of unequal capacity and intensity, one positive and the other negative. And there would be a similar result, no sensible effect whatever. To be effective in either case, there must be electrical excitement in the repelling body, that one having the greatest electrical capacity, which is sensible or active electricity. This excitement in small bodies is produced by friction or rubbing, whilst in the planets it may be by the universal combination of all material substances, their great velocity through space, and its the continual motion and chemical composition of their own atmospheres, gases and matter to us unknown. With the beautiful economy of their revolutionary arrangement of continual proximity and retrocession toward and from a common centre, which incessantly sends forth sensible rays of matter all tend, with transcendent and admirable adaptation, to keep up a state of sensible electricity, necessary for impelling the revolution of the great planetary system. As iron placed in contact with copper becomes positively electrified, the copper becoming negative, and tin in like manner placed with iron becoming positive. The iron becoming negative, so may the Earth be similarly affected when in comparative near proximity to some other planet, and others in like manner to each other. At the point of Aphelion, having attained a negative condition, the Earth being attracted by the Sun, which is always intensely positive to all of the bodies belonging to the solar system, is impelled to Perihelion, where again, attaining a positive condition, it is impelled to Aphelion through an electric elliptical orbit, the track of its annual circuit. It is not improbable that the Earth, like the Moon, occasionally casts off stones or other missiles from her sur- surface to some other planet, most probably the Moon. At the instant when that planet is at perigee, a rock or some other detached solid body, may they not be real magnetic stones, having attained a positive intensity of sensible electricity equal to that of the body of the Earth, is impelled to the Moon as a meteoric stone to us. Doubtless this theory will be disputed like all new discoveries, provided those who are competent to deign to notice it, but should it receive the verdict of a bill of ignoramus, that will not prevent intelligent minds from reflection. Are you still with me? Yeah, I'm here. Yes, that was quite different to the prior. Yeah. And I thought I would check that you are still with me because that is quite dry and scientific. (laughs) I Um, fell asleep. (laughs) (laughs) I thought maybe I didn't a hundred percent follow to be honest but I thought maybe he was talking at the end about like the earth attracting meteors that hit the moon if which is a thing that is actually yeah yeah. um yeah I mean I'm not entirely sure that I followed it either to be honest it is like I said very densely written as far (laughs) as I understand it he's talking about I think what we would understand now as the gravitational pull of the planets and how um yeah they have these fields i'm sure any kind of astrophysicist would be cringing to hear this um but they have these fields around them (laughs) so they can't get too close it sounds very um plausible yeah i'm just wondering so when did you say this was published this is january 1859 which is part of why i picked this because a it still sounds very plausible and B, some of the concepts that are coming up sound like it seems really early to be bringing this up. I mean, the Wells story is from 
the mm-hmm. fantasy eckler isn't it it's from like 40 yeah i i think i want to say it's 1900 or 1899 so so this is like 40 years before Antolini's. yeah the other reason that i thought this was worth worth reading is because this is directly followed by chapters i think it's chapter 28 to 30 of blake or the huts of america which we talked about in one of the previous episodes as being his really canonical piece and is included now in the canon of african-american fiction yeah so even in that context the you know he's doing these two vastly different things but right next to one another yeah that is fascinating Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah i feel like i mean i'm not by no means as much of a polymath as uh, delaney but i feel like you know people who tend to be like involved in a lot of very different pursuits I mean, they're all connected somehow. Your thoughts don't, you're not like siloed thoughts about science and then politics and then novel writing. It's like they, they all do kind of, they're, they're in conversation in your head. And then sometimes that connection is lost when they make their way out into the world. But so it's really, really cool that the connection is actually just still right there in the pages of this periodical. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I wonder, I think it might be worthwhile reading. So there's this little insert before that chapter 28 of Blake, where the editor, I'm trying to remember who was the editor. I don't know if I can find out off the top of my head. Um, but it's written in kind of house style. So it's not written as if Delaney's ri- written it. But it's a really interesting, like their reflection on what he's doing with Blake. So, quote, we publish in this issue chapters 28, 29 and 30 of a new work of thrilling interest with the above title on the manuscript of which the author, Dr. M.R. Delaney, now holds a copyright. So he's also going by Dr. Um, yeah. Good for him. <laughs> that might have sounded sarcastic and it wasn't meant to be. <laughs> this work differs essentially from all others heretofore published. It not only shows the combined political and commercial interests that unite the North and South, but gives in the most familiar manner the formidable understanding among the slaves throughout the United States and Cuba. The scene is laid in Mississippi, the plot extending into Cuba. The hero, being an educated West Indian um, racial slur, who deprived of his liberty by fraud when young and brought to the United States in mature age at the instance of his wife, being sold from him, sought revenge through the medium of a deep-laid secret organisation. The work is written in two parts, so as to make two volumes in one, containing some 80 chapters and about 600 pages. We do not give these chapters because of their particular interests above the others, but that they... (laughs) This is so funny. (laughs) We do not give these chapters because of their particular interest above the others, but that they were the only ones the author would permit us to copy. (laughs) The writer of said work, as will be seen, is also the author of a new theory of the attraction of planets, cohesion, etc., and is at the head of a scientific corps of racial slur gentlemen, the Niger Valley Exploring Party, and now in this city arranging for an expedition of his party to Central Africa. The party consists of Dr. Martin Ardenani, Mr. Robert Douglas, artist, Mr. Robert Campbell, naturalist, Dr. Amos Array, surgeon, and Mr. James R. Purnell, secretary and commercial reporter. We commend these chapters to our reader and hope that the author may place the work into the hands of a publisher before he departs for Africa. <laughs> So, A, this can't be Delaney writing in third person. (laughs) Um, The fact that they needed to say 
these are the only chapters he'd let us reproduce. It's so funny. <laughs> That is so... Because this is ahead of its actual serialization then. So he's just like... Yeah, it is. Um, yeah, that is interesting. Because I saw this and I knew that it hadn't been serialized yet. So I thought possibly it was a brief, you know, like synopsis of the plot. Which in part it is. But then that second paragraph. Um, a, mm-hmm. a has that interesting tidbit. But also... Um, like really threads together all these different things that he's doing so it's saying he wrote this he's also doing leading this expedition he wrote this scientific theory like it's building on what you were saying about most people have those different silos but it's not often brought together and it's explicitly brought together here yeah 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 that's really cool i feel like my like just from my reading, it was a lot more clear that I was much more interested in that little bit than the scientific theory. But not to say it's not interesting. <laughs> it was much, much more accessible. <laughs> yeah. I was interested in the way that both pieces um, uh, use gender. So in the first piece, the piece yes. I read, like Delaney's definition of patriot is always a man there are no women patriots in in that theory and then like the weird thing where the, the sun, sun is, a man. is male yeah. and the earth is female like i've heard the sun being masculinized before but i think it's usually the moon that's then the opposite instead of earth being female and it's just yeah it's interesting really interesting <laughs> yeah and there's no kind of explanation for why that would be so and it's not just that he's you know using masculine pronouns as default so that is really interesting yeah yeah because i mean like i want to you know like that impulse to sort of think you understand and like explain for why somebody's doing something but if it's like because the earth gives life well also the sun gives life so that doesn't make any sense yeah i was interested when i was reading this actually of how um how clear it is that this isn't a theory that this is a theory of intelligent design really like he's saying this is a setup that god has created there are more references to mm-hmm. um god than i might necessarily have expected just with the synopsis yeah yeah but again this is you know this is pre darwin yeah. and we, we're still operating on sort of like theological models of biology so it, it makes sense that that's extended to the stars and the planets actually makes so much sense and i didn't even twig that this is pre-darwin <laughs> that's even cooler like i knew it was early but yeah i mean i have no like i don't have enough depth of knowledge of like 19th century astronomy to know if like where this fits in that kind of conversation but but yeah this this is published in january and then origin of species comes out in the november of that year so maybe because it's january 59 and then origin of species is november so maybe these conversations are starting to happen possibly not but yeah i would imagine they would yeah well i mean i'm sure there are i mean like 
I'm sure there have always been scientists who are not sort of yeah, assuming yeah. a theological framework. It's just that, yeah, that's super common still. But yeah, I still found it. I don't know. But yeah, that and some of the precision that's clear here, like um, the diameter of the sun being estimated at 2.4 million miles. It's just really cool. Yeah. I mean, you can tell, like, he is a lifelong scholar. Yeah. And he also has that talent that a lot of people don't necessarily have of um, writing really well for distinct audiences, even though these are being published in the same magazine. Obviously, you have that thing of people dipping and out of articles mm-hmm. they want, and it is written in a really distinct style from his fiction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, like his article in the North Star, just I was struck by how compared to 19th century um, like news articles of the time, it was just so like so easy to read in a way that speaks to the talent of the writer. Not not it's not I'm not saying it's like simple. I'm just saying like it's very readable in a way that's still very sophisticated. Yeah. And like. Yeah, like, I mean, reading, like, reading the Corelli piece recently, the Corelli article, that was clause upon clause upon clause upon clause, which is super, super common. It's like, as you try to pack 12 ideas into one sentence, you know, like, that's not happening here, which I really appreciate it. Which I think, yeah, he has more of a tendency to do in the scientific writing, but that's understandable when you think what the like amount of information he's trying to get up, get across in three and a bit pages. Yeah. But again, that's about writing for genre, which is is really successful at. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I'm I'm a thorough Delaney fan after all of this. I still haven't got to Blake in the or the Huts of America, but I have downloaded it and I am going to read it. And I'm really excited to read it, especially after today. Yeah, well, what I'll do is I will put in the show notes the... um, Because I'm just reading this online on Trust, which is a free resource that anyone can access. So you can read those three chapters Mm -hmm. that Delaney said he could publish ahead of the book's publication. Or the book, because that also will be on there. Yeah, yeah. I think our show notes from um, episode 20 include a link to the full published text yeah maybe i think so i certainly linked to because i found this on um they had the first page of a lot of these on um new york public library's website but it's just the first page Mm -hmm. yeah so next month we'll be moving on to uh pauline hopkins another 19th century african-american writer of science fiction and fantasy i'm super excited for this like i've not read anything by her before but i've read about her yeah um yeah super exciting stuff i guess now is as good of time as any to note that we've decided to drop uh richard marsh from this season um don't worry, we'll probably cover him eventually, but just... Just practicalities. Things, uh, yeah, just for, yeah. I think we decided that we'd rather um, have the space to look at 
the writers that we have looked at in more detail and maybe save Richard Marsh to a time in the future when we can give him that courtesy as well. Yeah. Um, so you can look forward to uh, our biographical and writing episodes on Pauline Hopkins. And then this summer, watch our social media spaces on our website for some exciting opportunities um, related to season four. And with that, I guess it's time to call this episode. So <laughs> thanks for listening. Yes, thank you for listening. Victorian Scribblers is researched, written, and produced by me, Courtney Floyd, and my co-host, Eleanor Dumbbell. The podcast is made possible by support from listeners like you. If you liked what you heard today and want to help ensure more fabulous content, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes, spread the word on social media, and, if you can, visit www.victorianscribblers.com support us to donate. Every dollar helps provide us with things like web hosting, subscriptions to research databases, and recording equipment, which all helps us bring more content to you. Music and sound effects for this podcast are available under Creative Commons Attribution Licenses. Our theme is Joseph Miroslav Weber's String Quartet, number two in B minor, performed by Steve's Bedroom Band. The music for our Around the World feature is Puddington Bear's Bit Rio. Our closing music this season is a 1911 recording of Come Josephine and My Flying Machine, performed by Ada Jones and Billy Murray, and made available by the UCSB Cylinder Audio Archive. I was going to try and make something about these four authors that we're looking at is not because they're the best, it's because it's the ones that we would allow ourselves to copy. <laughs> <laughs>